Hello. Uh, I'm going to take a risk and begin by telling you a very old Christian joke. That's a joke told by a very old Christian. <laughs> I was crossing a bridge and I saw a man who looked like he was about to jump in. And he looked at me and he said, don't try and stop me. Nobody loves me, not even God. And I said, you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, well, so do I. And I took a step closer to him. I said, what religion are you? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, so am I. I took a step closer to him. I said to him, are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm a Protestant. I said, so am I. Took a step closer. I said, are you Anglican or nonconformist? He said, I'm nonconformist. I said, so am I. Took a step nearer. I said, uh, are you evangelical or liberal? He said, well, I'm evangelical. I said, so am I. I said, uh, charismatic, non-charismatic. He said, charismatic. I said, so am I. I took a step nearer. I said, um, vineyard or new frontiers? He says, new frontiers. I said, so am I. I'm really close to him now. Took a step nearer. I said, um, new frontiers. Which sphere in new frontiers? Catalyst? New ground? He said, new ground. I said, so am I. I said to him, in your new ground church, do you take communion before the sermon or afterwards? He said, well, before. I said, you're a heretic. And I shoved him in the river. <laughs> Jack, if you could put a laughter track on at that point so people know it's funny, I'd appreciate that. Division in the church. The, the, the tragedy is if we can find something to disagree on, it seems like we'll find it. And tragically, this started so early. We're in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter Paul is writing to first-generation Christians around 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, or after Jesus' birth, and... Um, they're already divide, divided. And the tragedy is in Corinth at that time, there is only one church. And yet we can read in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 that, uh, and onwards that somebody in the church called Chloe has written to Paul and told him about divisions in the church. So that some are saying, I follow Paul, and some are saying, I follow Apollos, and some are saying, I follow Kephas, that's, uh, that's uh, Peter. And they're dividing up over who they're following. And uh, as we've already heard, division is rooted in pride. In this letter, Paul is addressing a number of key problems in the church. And the first problem in the church at Corinth that he's addressing is division. Division that is rooted in in pride. The door that opens the way to God's grace is humility. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I cannot save myself. I need a savior. I need you to save me. And that brings us all to the same level, kneeling at the foot of the cross. This week, Paul drives the message home by describing the power of the cross. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Paul says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The cross turns everything upside down. This is its power and its wonder. At the time that Paul is writing, the Roman Empire was the epitome of strength, dominating the world culturally, militarily, politically, economically. Jesus is the epitome of weakness. He's a rural peasant in a rural backwater of the Roman Empire. He dies a slave's death, shameful, full of degradation and humility, humiliation. This weakness of the, the gospel continues in this first generation of Christians. Uh, here in Corinth, as uh, was Simon described to us the other week, there is one church. Historians reckon it's probably about 100, 200 people at most meeting in one house. It's in a city of tens of thousands. Uh, they are small, they are weak. Paul reminds them, you are nothing special. You're not noble. You're not influential. You're not wise. You're not strong. But God has chosen you. When the Roman Empire finally does notice them, it throws its might against them. Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Domitian, try to wipe them out, persecute them horrendously, but they fail. 2,000 years later, it's the Roman Empire that is literally history and the church that is alive and well and spread across the whole planet. Secular historian Tom Holland grapples with this question honestly, looking at all the facts. How is it that the church has survived and spread down through the centuries? And this is what he says. He says it's the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and the civilization to which it gave birth. All are heirs to the same revolution, the revolution that has at its heart the image of a dead God on a cross. That's uh, Tom Holland, uh, his book Dominion, quoted by Andrew Wilson in his great commentary on 1 Corinthians for you. 
Jesus said that his kingdom was like yeast, hidden, working through the batch, unseen and yet affecting everything. He said it was like a tiny seed that no one would notice and yet would grow up to become a mighty tree filling the whole earth. We need to remember this when we're feeling bypassed or irrelevant in our culture. When culture seems to dismiss the church and its teachings as irrelevant, foolish or even offensive. Even when persecution comes as a result of this, whether it's the soft persecution of ridicule uh, or whether it's harsher persecution threatening our livelihoods and our freedom and even our lives as is happening in some parts of the world today. This is expected. This is normal. Beware when the world thinks well of us. That's when things start getting corrupted in the church and going wrong. Paul says God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast. There's no room for boasting in our cleverness in finding Jesus. No room for boasting of uh, our leaders who look good on a platform, although thank God for leaders who do look good on a platform. Or our traditions that have come down through the centuries. No room for boasting. Only boasting in Jesus and what he has done. Now Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There may be a bit of an irony here because Paul clearly is eloquent. A bit later on in this chapter, we'll come to 1 Corinthians 13, which even people who don't believe in God recognize as one of the most beautiful bits of eloquence coming out of the ancient world to us today. Believing in Jesus is rational, but that's not its power. If you're someone who is seeking or exploring, you you might say, well, what I need is a killer argument. Uh, But the point is, you might be deceived. Uh, You might say, well, what I need to see is a miraculous, uh, something miraculous to happen. But you don't know what the source of the power of that miracle is. It might be demonic. Those things in themselves are important, but God will never remove the need for us to respond to him by faith. Yes, we need to consider Yes, we need to weigh things up, but then we need to make a decision. And that will always be a step of faith. I choose to believe God. You are who you say you are. Paul says that his message and his preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I don't think what he's saying is here, I'm relying on miracles to prove what I'm saying. Although Paul did do signs and wonders, even on one occasion, at least he raised someone from the dead. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. 
He's saying when it comes to responding to God in faith, I'm relying on the Holy Spirit to be the one who brings that about. I can't persuade you by my intelligence or even by miraculous signs. In the end, you're only born again when the Holy Spirit brings new life into you. Disciples, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, we must always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. There's nothing wrong with presenting eloquent arguments, but our most powerful and most useful tool and weapon is always going to be prayer. It's always going to be, God, please will you open this person's eyes? Some of us, I'd include myself, you know, we find it difficult to expose ourselves in terms of presenting our faith to those around us. We feel shy and bashful. And those are real battles. But there's nothing that can stop us from praying. There's no excuse for not praying for those that we're wanting to see to come to see come to faith. Say, God, please, will you open their eyes? In the end, I can only rely on the power of your Holy Spirit to do this. This is the wisdom and the grace of God. And this is the beauty of our faith in Jesus. It isn't reserved for the elite or the intellectuals or the powerful. Not those who can say, I was smart enough to work it out and look down on those who haven't got it yet. It's open to everyone. Now, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Very important we recognise that last bit. I'm going to know Jesus and him crucified. We find that people want Jesus without the cross. The world often wants to present him in that way. And sadly, even parts of the church want to present Jesus without the, the, the cross. Just a, a good moral teacher, uh, a good uh, example to follow this misunderstood martyr who can inspire us with his gentleness and his humility. We have to understand it's Jesus Christ and him crucified that we need to present. That's the whole point of it all. The cross is Jesus' weakest moment and yet his most powerful act. It's the center of it all, of everything we hope and believe in is the cross. You know, the cross is the steepest of all mysteries and yet the simplest of all truths. What it achieves is within the grasp of a child or the most impaired of minds and yet its full depths are beyond the sharpest intellects and the most powerful of angels. It can be understood in a moment and yet we'll spend all eternity exploring its wonders. Now I just want to make sure you understand what it is the cross achieves and so I'm going to present it to you in the most simplest of terms. Please don't be too proud as to think this is beneath you or deceived into thinking that it's beyond you. You were created to know God as Father. We were created to draw abundant life from him. But we rebelled. We said to God in pride, we don't want to do things your way. We want to be the arbiters of what's right and wrong. 
And this resulted in separation from God, spiritual death. But here's the wonderful truth. God sent his son into the world. Jesus Christ became a man and lived amongst us. And so once again, for the 30 odd years of his life, there was a man walking on the earth who was in perfect relationship with God, his father, surrounded by those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, far away from God. And yet he was drawing life from God, his father, full of abundant fruitfulness in his character and in his deeds. But by God's plan, he went to the cross. What happens on the cross is wonderful. He died on the cross, that most shameful of deaths. And as he died on the cross, God held him accountable for our sin. Paul teaches this plainly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that awful moment, the sin of all humanity was transferred onto Jesus. And he, for the first time in eternity past, was separated from his father God. So you see him crying out in that awful moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the possibility of our redemption is birthed as he credits us with his righteousness. What a wonderful exchange. And then, of course, wonderfully, God raised Jesus from the dead and in doing so confirmed that the price he paid was enough. In that moment, breaking the curse of death over all who would come to him. And God wonderfully unites us with Jesus So that now from the moment someone puts their trust in him and then on throughout all eternity, we can again draw life from our Father God, bearing fruit to his glory and to our good. This is wonderful. Do you get it? Has the penny dropped? It's not going to be through my eloquence. It's going to be through an act of the Holy Spirit that the penny will drop. I pray that it is. The cross ends division because it ends boasting. Jesus did it all on the cross. So we'll boast about him, not about ourselves. Listen, I hope you enjoy our preaching from Everyday Church week by week. I hope that you find nuggets of wisdom for life. I hope you even find it entertaining sometimes. I hope you find things presented that help you make sense of the world around you and your life circumstances. But these aren't TED Talks. We're not trying to tell you how to live a happy life. We're not presenting morale-boosting homilies or entertaining tales. We've only got one message, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, wherever you are at the moment, whatever you need, ultimately, you'll only find it at the cross. You need wisdom for some circumstance you're facing. Come to the cross. Let its power unfold in your life again. If you're struggling to find peace, release from guilt, 
that sense that is so widespread that you just don't measure up. Come to the cross. Jesus will provide your righteousness. You're feeling that you need to change some aspect of your life, something that seems to be controlling you, uh, that you just can't break free of. We all do need to change. It starts at the cross. It's the power of the cross that transforms, that brings what we call sanctification, this transformation of our character and our lives closer and closer into the image of Jesus. This is the wisdom and the grace of God for us. The cross brings us low. All of us, not some of us, all of us. It brings us to our knees, in fact, saying, Jesus, I need you. I need a saviour. I cannot save myself. But then it lifts us up higher than we could possibly have dreamed or imagined reigning with Christ Jesus in this life and through all eternity. Paul says it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord Jesus, I just want to ask you, please, to send out your Holy Spirit, even now, even through these stumbling words, uh, Lord, that the power of your gospel will hit some afresh today. Thank you for going to the cross for us. We worship you. Amen. God bless you.